0: Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Entrepreneur Podcast, where I, Caitlin Fritz, help you reach your entrepreneurial potential. Together, we can build your dream social impact business so that you can leave a legacy beyond your nine to five. Hello, hello, and welcome back to this episode of the Everyday Entrepreneurship Podcast. I am so thrilled to be having you here with me today. If you are new, welcome. My name is Caitlin. I'm an award-winning entrepreneur, enterprise educator, and business coach who's worked with founders across the world to build, grow, and scale their impact-led businesses. And today I am so honored and honestly humbled to have Joe Seddon with us today. If you haven't heard of him, honestly, where have you been? He is the founder of Zero Gravity, an incredible, I would say scaling, not even a startup technology company that supports low income students into universities and careers. He is recognized by Forbes, even with a British Empire medal. And his story is one that I think a lot of people will resonate with he saw a problem he wanted to approach and took action and that's what we're here about at everyday entrepreneurship those change makers who saw a problem such as increased access for low income students especially to leading universities like oxford and cambridge and took over the uk by storm Zero Gravity is an incredible organization that has just exploded over the past couple of years, raising various investment, and more importantly, helping thousands of students to study at Russell Group universities and get those careers they want. So listen in because I am thrilled to have Joe on the show. So today we have the amazing Joe Sutton, the founder of Zero Gravity, with us today. So welcome, Joe.
1: Great to be with you, Caitlin. Looking forward to the episode.
0: So let's take it on back, because I know you've shared your story of where Access Oxbridge, now Zero Gravity, stemmed from. But take me back to those days when you were a student. You know, what inspired you? to kind of change this whole narrative of access to education?
1: I think it all goes back to my own personal story, really, which is I grew up in a small town in the UK called Morley, which is between Leeds and Wakefield in West Yorkshire. It's a sort of post-industrial town, sort of place that political commentators would label a red wall seat. And I grew up in a single parent background. My mum's a speech therapist in the NHS. In fact, most of my family members work in the NHS, and I uh, made a journey from state schools to Oxford University where I studied PPE, which stands for philosophy, politics and economics, not personal protective equipment, uh, which is, uh, is the mistake everyone makes nowadays. And I just saw firsthand, to be honest, just how big the barriers were for students like me to break into elite institutions. No, not just universities, but their apprenticeships and graduate careers as well. And you know, when I sort of spoke to a lot of my friends about it and reflected on my own journey, it almost felt like there was some kind of gravitational force the holding, holding you down, whether that was financial anxiety and not being able to afford to pay for tutors or textbooks or extra educational resources. You know, coming from an area with little opportunity, poor transport links, uh, those socioeconomic the deprivation family issues like all of those things they all combine to create this sense that the background you're from dictates your success in life but i don't think things have to be that way and you know when i started zero gravity i'd set out to try and change the way things work you know, unlock talent from low-opportunity areas and empower them into these elite institutions. So, so the idea in many ways goes back to my own personal story, but I, I'm not unique and you know, I'm not a an outlier. There's you no know, hundreds of thousands of people like me you know, dotted all across the UK who are currently you know, experiencing that journey you know, right now. And I wanted Zero Gravity to be the kind of solution uh, for those people.
0: I love that because where I grew up in the US, you know, it's a similar steel town kind of an area where i think you know less than one in ten actually go to university and i think around the world we have these pockets of really huge potential with young children young adults but once again it's it is that access so then how did you how did this journey start because it was before access oxbridge so were you the typical tinkering in a dorm room building an app like what did it look like from boots on the ground
1: so when i came to graduate from university i always knew i wanted to be a tech entrepreneur that was my big uh, passion which was, was quite a strange thing to do at the time because you know when i grew up in morley in west yorkshire i was always interested in technology and startups so it was almost like a little dirty secret I didn't want to admit to any of my friends that I was kind of interested in that stuff because it just wasn't stuff that people were talking about. Um, like not a normal um, sort of passion or pastime for like a 13, 14-year-old boy. But I knew that was what I wanted to do. And when I graduated from university, I had a number of different graduate job offers. you know, become a lawyer, work in a hedge fund. But I decided to turn those down and, and move back in with my mum, essentially, in West Yorkshire. And, and that is where Zero Gravity was born from and that decision looks smart now back in the day it was incredibly high risk and wasn't actually something that many people thought was a, a good idea that even my closest friends and family members thought I was completely nuts for giving up a kind of steady stable graduate career you no know, climbing the, the kind of corporate ladder for you know, a very uncertain future in startup life and I think that's one of the difficulties in entrepreneurship which is People don't respect it as a career decision until you have all the kind of hallmarks and credibility signals of of success. Now, when you're first starting off, especially in the UK, there's a lot of skepticism about pursuing that career path. Now, indeed, in Yorkshire, there's a kind of joke that if you describe yourself as an entrepreneur, that's just another way of saying you're unemployed, Um, and which which is probably what most people uh, perceive me to be doing. They're just trying to find an excuse not to get a proper job. Now, when I first launched Zero Gravity, you know, you're right, back in the day, it was, it was named Access Oxbridge, and that's because I just wanted to get a product you know, out there in the world that people would use and get insights you know, directly from users about whether it was something that was worth pursuing or not. And when I thought about how to bring my kind of grand vision, which I just spoke about, down to earth, I decided to start on the ecosystem I understood best, and that was Oxygen Cambridge. University, So that the first iteration of zero-gravity products was just focusing on getting students from low-opportunity backgrounds into Oxbridge, and, and I named that kind of pilot product Access Oxbridge. So like, wasn't the sexiest, most glamorous name in the world, I and mean, the technology wasn't the most sexiest technology either, but it was good enough to get going and start getting the insights about actually is this something that people want and which parts of it do they find valuable. So like my advice to any early stage entrepreneurs would be like, you know, ditch the perfectionism that is kind of instilled in you by the academic system. You know, just get going and get something out there. And you know, these things like product, brand, you know, marketing, you know, building beautiful systems, these things really, really matter in the long term. And you should be thinking about those, but don't let analysis paralysis hold you back. You know, at the beginning, you just need to move quickly and get a product into the hands of people. And and that's the approach that I took, like not consciously, but probably accidentally. I I was so kind of like eager and keen as a 21-year-old founder to get going. I just kind of did this intuitively. But looking back, I think it's probably one of the best decisions that I, I made.
0: No, I think you're totally right. I think we are kind of instilled with this rubric. And there is no rubric when you launch your first product. It is messy. It is everything kind of you know, hodgepodge together. I know my first Apple was as well. But getting that feedback is so critical, especially before, you know, you raise funds and you grow. But I think it's really interesting because you talked about, you know, having this desire to be a tech entrepreneur and you kind of don't fit that, you know, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos mold because zero gravity is a social enterprise. So what, what led you down that kind of social enterprise entrepreneurship tech for good routes?
1: Well, the reason I became an entrepreneur is I, I never really wanted to make loads of money. Like That was not the driving force behind my entrepreneurship. Like I wanted to solve the problems that are out there in the real world that will make a real difference to people's lives. And that sounds a little bit cliche and grandiose, but but that is the thing that kind of gets me out of bed in the morning, you know, feeling that I'm they're you know, making an impact and having a difference on a topic or issue that I've experienced firsthand myself. And I think a lot of great businesses start from those seeds and they're not trying to create something that you know leads to a profit or leads to like loads of shareholder value, but just actually doing something cool that solves a, a problem. So that that's where my kind of my drive to do this came from. And I actually think that is a winning approach because I think when you obsess about understanding a problem and building a solution, you actually create something that's far more valuable in the long term than kind of worrying about pinching. Pennies. I think with a startup, you know, being too revenue profit focused too early is it can actually be a really bad thing and kind of veer you off course and you, know, you start chasing money without thinking about the long term implications of some of the choices that you're making. So I actually think being a mission driven entrepreneur is a, a competitive advantage. I, I don't really see it as a kind of restraint on, on what we're doing. I actually see it as the core of our our business success, not just our kind of social impact success. Uh, because the other thing you really get b- being a mission-driven business is your brand is far more compelling because people emotionally connect far more with businesses that have a clear mission behind them than just businesses which are like very bricks and mortar and not doing anything that has a tangible impact on society and the things people care about. And and But the other thing as well is it's it's a great way to attract incredible people. Towards you, whether that's the people you want in your team, investors, you no know, clients, the having a clear mission is like a calling card that actually provokes interest in what you're doing. And that enables you to build a team of the best people around you. And in the long term, your business success is defined by the people you can bring to the table. Like at the beginning, you may be a one-man band in the bedroom, but the thing that's going to make your long-term success is building the best team of people around you, and, and a mission is a is a huge competitive advantage in doing that. Like if you don't have that mission, that can be the kind of the motivating force to bring people into your orbit. All you have is cash, and you know, the thing about startups is you don't tend to have very much cash. So, so your mission is your competitive advantage. It, it's I've never seen it as a restraint on what we're doing.
0: I think you're absolutely right. I think mission can glue like you mentioned, those people in your orbit, whether they are your you know, leadership team all the way to your partners. And you've been leading and stepping forward in your mission. So how, how did you get your first school, your first university involved? Because I've been in ed tech and I know how difficult the UK education system can be and it can be quite fragmented. So how did you get that credibility in the market and bring those people into your orbit? Sure,
1: so like when I first launched Zero Gravity, I quite naively thought it would be really easy to get institutions on board because at the beginning, we just wanted schools and universities to work with us so we could attract as many students onto our platform as possible. Quite quickly, I kind of ran into the uh, the cold, hard reality, Actually, working with institutions as a startup is is really really difficult because from a kind of you no know, school or university's point of view, you're taking a bet on a young, plucky, unproven organisation, and often in those kind of institutions, you don't get rewarded for taking risk. You no, know, like your your kind of incentives that you have is to actually like minimise risk as much as possible because you can get fired. For giving twenty thousand pounds to an organisation that fails in four weeks, but you're unlikely to get promoted by doing something innovative. So, so the kind of incentive structures of organisations like veer away from working with startups, and I kind of recognised that quite quickly, and and pivoted our initial strategy to actually being able to sign up school students and undergrads without having to partner with institutions whatsoever. So we, for the first couple of years, we just worked on building a really well-defined brand that people loved and building marketing channels through organic social media, turning our users into brand ambassadors and finding, you know, novel growth hacks of how to reach students. So we didn't actually focus at all on institutional partnering in the first couple of years because I just didn't think we had the fundamentals to be able to partner with institutions. Now that's changed recently, you know we've got over 30% of all the state schools in the UK who are now formally partnered with Zero Gravity, over 700 schools, and also some of the biggest universities in the country. But it took you know, three years to get to that point. So I think the lesson out of that is that when you're building a strategy for a startup, like you have to make sure that your strategy is hunkered down in reality and the capability that you've got. And what you'll find is that actually institutions are very, very difficult to work with at the beginning of your startup journey. So actually sometimes the best strategies are strategies which disintermediate from gatekeeper institutions and allow you to get directly to your audience. And in the long-term you may find a way back into that B2B partnering model. And that can be a really good model in the long-term, but in the short-term you have to have a strategy which is hunkered down in reality. And for a lot of startups, that means avoiding institutions rather than trying to partner with them.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you went straight to your users. And I think that has reaped once again, that credibility when you have 1000s of students on your platform, that makes it even more enticing and credible to a kind of B2B play. Now, I know you've been in this business now for the past couple of years, it hasn't been easy. So what, what has been some of like your biggest hurdles in building and scaling zero gravity
1: i think the thing that people don't necessarily tell you when you're an early stage founder is the importance of network and fundraising if you're building a business that requires a lot of investment to get going and and most technology businesses do because you have to invest a lot of money in building a a great product before people buy that product um, you need to have a great network around you of people who can And help you fundraise for investors and kind of point you in the right direction people to speak to and I just didn't have that when I started because I was someone from a a northern suburb um, who didn't really have many professionals in my network and even though I'd gone to a really good university I just didn't have that network of kind of angel investors in London around me kind of inherited from from family so I had to build that from from scratch, and I quickly realized that there is a big part of this, which is it's who you know, not what you know. You can have the most incredible business idea in the world and really good execution. But if you need funds to grow your venture, you do also need to become a master of networking and, and fundraising. That's just a brutal reality. So I started to do that, and it was not very comfortable or intuitive for me because I was a bit of an introvert. I saw networking as a kind of like dirty thing. I, I didn't sort of like appreciate it as a, as a skill. I kind of associated it with like awkward corporate networking events where you sort of stand in the corner with a slightly um, you know, room temperature glass of uh, Prosecco and there's people who come and sort of annoy you. So that, that's why I thought... Awkward business cards. I, awkward <laughs> business cards. That's what I thought networking was. But actually I realized over time like networking like isn't that. Networking is a, a skill you need of how do you bring the right people into your orbit? and align people's incentives so both you and the person can get mutual benefit out of your connection and when it came to zero gravity i I created a kind of media flywheel to bring you know people into my orbit who could help me grow the the business so most of our original investors that came to me directly having read about zero gravity in the mainstream media or having seen our posts on on social media and on on linkedin or or Instagram. And then from those original people that they then choose me to more people, it became a bit of a domino effect over time. And I can sort of trace back almost every single investor in our company to a couple of initial core contacts, which I had. So I, I think the most difficult part about building a network is actually going from having you no know, zero Helpful, high-quality people in your network to 100. Well, once you get to 100, going from 100 to 1,000 is is much easier because it kind of becomes self-reinforcing. But the first thing you have to concentrate on is how do you get that first 100 people who can help you really grow and scale your business into your orbit? And that's not as simple as kind of just messaging people on LinkedIn. You have to create a really compelling value proposition that those people want to engage with, and then don't just send them the kind of typical cold outreach message that's just going to fall on on deaf ears
0: absolutely I think you and I probably went through similar experiences you know when people are saying oh raise from family and friends and I was like what family and friends have extra tens of thousands of pounds laying around I don't I, I don't have that family and friends <laughs> um, yeah
1: exactly I, I thought that phrase was a joke as well because I thought if I did a whip round of my family and friends I might like raise like uh, 20 quid and maybe a Freddo on top of unlucky but like certainly not 50k angel investment from your rich uncle and th- i think that's a big assumption in the startup fate in the startup sector which is just reflected the fact that most startup founders are from affluent backgrounds mm-hmm. um there's a, a great piece of research in in sifted a couple of years ago which shows that even when you look at pre-vc-backed startups and vc-backed startups there's over 75 percent of the founders of those businesses are from the most uh, affluent backgrounds and I think that's just a factor of you know, access to capital but also the ability to take a risk that taking a risk if you're from a wealthy background is not existential if you fail it might be slightly embarrassing you might have wasted a bit of time but you can get back up and do something else but if you're from a low income background and you can't rely on the bank mum and dad the failure can be catastrophic now that can be your livelihoods that can be your house that can be the difference between know, being able to get by and being on the streets. So for most people, entrepreneurship is just not even a viable option most of the time as a full-time career. And I think people just don't even realize that. I think because so many people in the startup sector are from a certain background, they don't realize just how unaccessible or inaccessible the startup sector is. And that's why you get these phrases which kind of indicate the type of people who actually exist in the sector.
0: No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think you know, there, there is this breakdown between those who have potential to start incredible businesses, but also the privilege, you know, some have where there is that fallback plan. There is an ATM at home where, you know, your bills are taken care of. I know what it's like to, you probably do too, make payroll during COVID, all of those fun, incredibly stressful moments as a founder. And, and it, it, Difficult. It is not an easy path to pave. And I guess. Yes,
1: like w- when you've got people relying on you, that creates a huge degree of stress because the, the financial viability of your business doesn't just affect yourself, but other people as well. And I, I think that is one of the things that people going into entrepreneurship need to bear in mind that the number one skill, I think, for an early stage entrepreneur is resilience because Mm -hmm. it takes time to get going and you have to take a lot of gut punches and sort of fight a lot of battles to be able to get to a point where you start to get some traction. But then even when you do get on that kind of like nice growth path and the sort of growth path that Zero Gravity has been on for the past couple of years, you still face all sorts of crazy things that just come at you left, right and center when you least expect it. Like just as you think everything's going well, Something will come out of nowhere and hit you over the top of the head. So you have to be a hyper, hyper resilient person because sometimes these questions can be the difference between being able to pay people at the end of the month or not. So you have to be that person who's able to to battle through that. And, And that's why I actually think that founders who are from the more low opportunity backgrounds do have a hidden advantage when it comes to entrepreneurship, because in many ways, their difficult upbringings are a training ground for resilience. If you think of resilience as a muscle, which is something that you build over time, if you've had to face all of these challenges in your childhood, you're likely to be far more resilient from somebody who's just had everything fall into place for them. So I I think people from low-income backgrounds and low-opportunity areas have resilience and abundance. It's just not being put into good use because actually getting into the startup world is just too difficult.
0: Exactly. I think there's so much grit. And when you've lived through adversity, the adversity of the startup world, you know, It's not as foreign for someone you know who's lived through it, that lived experience. Speaking of that, you know, you work with incredible students across the UK and various ages. What piece of advice would you give them if they came to you and said, "Joe, I want to be an entrepreneur"? Mm,
1: It's a million dollar question. (laughs) Um, I think, as I mentioned earlier, it would be earlier in this conversation. It would be start early first couple of ventures are probably likely to fail so the the earlier you start the the quicker you'll actually find something that kind of falls into place like even though i did launch kind of formal business prior to zero gravity i would had various side hustles and things i've done in the past which like generated revenue i would had to work with clients i've had to build products that people wanted to use and, and that was an incredible training for actually becoming an entrepreneur so my, my number one piece of advice would be don't try and wait until the perfect moment with the perfect idea. Actually, try and do some pretty rubbish stuff first just to get some learnings um, based on both the skills and also the mentality you need to be an entrepreneur. So um, my number one piece of advice would be start now. Um, and my second piece of advice would be to, um, like, think um make sure you're doing something which is incredibly distinctive and, you know, creates – Uh, a product or a service which is at least 50% better than what already exists out there. Because I I think I see a lot of young entrepreneurs kind of trying to reinvent the wheel. I Mm -hmm. I think that's that's most people's kind of instincts when they're starting a business. I'm just going to reinvent something that already exists. But but the truth is, if you're building a startup, people are naturally risk-averse. And if you want people to use your product rather than the established Products in the market. Like you can't just be 10% better than what already exists. You have to be 50% better. So my advice to young entrepreneurs would be like really clearly define when you're creating a business, like what is the problem you're trying to solve? Like, why is this an important problem? What do you understand about that problem that other people don't? And then why is your solution 50% better than what already exists? Or or why could it be 50% better if you got to a certain point? And that sounds like pretty basic stuff, but I think a lot of people don't think that through incredibly carefully and that they run into something where they just end up reinventing the wheel and then they get confused why they don't become an overnight success. And, and that's because actually building something takes time and no matter what you do. But also, it's very difficult to get lift off if you're just reinventing the wheel, that like, you have to be different. So, like, pretty mundane, obvious advice, but that is the thing I see people doing wrong quite consistently.
0: No, I think, I think you're absolutely right, because it, ta- it requires that, you know, zooming out to really see, you know, how you differentiate yourself and I think that's really, really valid advice. So Joe, what is up next for you? I know you're, you've are you been all over the media. I think there was a piece this week from startups. And what is next for zero gravity? What can we look out for?
1: Yeah, it's it's quite weird seeing zero gravity sort of plastered all over social media and uh, and all the PR nowadays. And it just shows you that kind of virtuous circle effect, which is you know, getting... PR and social traction was was so difficult when I first started, but but now I think this year we've had over fifty uh, tier one media features in like you no know, top broadsheet uh, publications and and TV. Um, you know, we get you know, millions of impressions on social media uh, every month now, and 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 that would been something that was unfavourable a couple of years ago, but we just got into that virtuous circle of building and building and building over time. And in terms of what's up next, like for us, like we want to continue scaling our platform to power more students into top universities. We've we've supported over 8,000 students from low opportunity backgrounds into top unis to date, but we've got 10,000 on the platform this year applying right now. So those numbers are increasing exponentially and we want to continue pushing that. But the other thing that we're doing as well is also focusing on how do we get students into top internships, apprenticeships, and graduate careers, that is a increasing focus for us because going to a top university is, is great and really helpful, but it doesn't kick the ball in the back of the net. There's still that next stage of how do you get access to a great career. And they we're working with a number of the UK's leading employers now to really level the playing field when it comes access to these elite professions. And I think that's really exciting because I think what we hopefully will see, if we're able to get that right, is we can create a real demographic shift in who actually works in some of these leading companies. In in the same way there's started to be a demographic shift in universities, I think that same trend can come to some of the UK's leading employers as well. And the ripple effect of that is that there'll be different people in those rooms making decisions and that will lead to better outcomes, not just for those individuals, but for all of society. Because as we say, it's zero gravity. That when talent wins, everyone wins. So I, I don't just see this about individual empowerment. Like this is actually about creating a more meritocratic, you know, dynamic world that works for everyone. And, and that's what we're trying to do, I suppose.
0: I think that's incredible. It's a, it's a whole systems change. It's not. It, I mean, it starts at the individual but the ripple effects that zero gravity is going to have throughout universities workplace and everywhere in between. I know I am so excited to look forward to it. So Joe, if someone wants to connect or if someone listening wants to sign up for zero gravity, where can they find you?
1: Yeah. So zero gravity is at zerogravity.co.uk. You can sign up in around two minutes. And then if anyone wants any advice on breaking into the weird wacky world of entrepreneurship, or wants to know more about zero gravity, uh, just ping me a DM on LinkedIn.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been an absolute honor to speak with you. And I am looking forward to seeing the lasting impact of zero gravity.
1: Awesome. Good stuff, Caitlin. Great to be on the podcast.
0: Honestly, if that was not inspiring, I do not know what is You have to take a moment and look up Joe's story and also the legacy and current pioneering happening at Zero Gravity. They're absolutely on a roll. They've been featured in BBC, various student unions, also lectures. I mean, I can't even rattle off the list. But what I think is really important here is how Joe approached his lessons in entrepreneurship. He is someone who has truly gone out, validated the solution, found that niche to make an impact. And honestly, the results thus far has been astounding. So definitely take a look at the work he's done, and the amazing company Zero Gravity. Now that's it for this show. But if you're interested in learning more about entrepreneurs who are inspiring, building, and growing some incredible businesses, then subscribe to this podcast, leave us a review, and follow along with me on my email list. Until next time, this is Everyday Entrepreneurship. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Everyday Entrepreneurship. To stay tuned and most up-to-date, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow me, Caitlin Fritz, on Instagram. And if you have any questions about building your business with impact, drop me an email with the link in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the great people at the Podcast Boutique. I look forward to catching up with you next week. See you then.